believes that the church is designed to be a genuine community of people, creating a safe space of belonging for all, seeking to serve our neighbors with the compassion of God, providing opportunities to learn to be more like Jesus, and living life well together. This can't happen in a one-hour time slot on Sunday mornings, yet we desire to be a worshiping, missional community in Clayton, North Carolina. Visit MosaicClayton.com or find us on Facebook, Mosaic Church of Clayton. So uh, this last week I was at a, a minister's conference in San Antonio and we stayed at the historic Crockett Hotel which is uh, directly across the street from the Alamo. Um, and as you can imagine the Alamo is this huge tourist trap and you know it's a tourist trap because within a block there is a Ripley something, okay? So that's how you know you're in a touristy area when Ripley's has any piece of property uh, around it. So Ripley's, believe it or not, the Wax Museum, all those different types of things. Um, so despite its touristy uh, nature, the Alamo has great significance to Texans and uh, in December of of 1835, during a Texas War of Independence from Mexico, a group of Texas volunteers, Texan volunteers, occupied the Alamo, uh, which was a former Franciscan mission. And on uh, February the 23rd of 1836, uh, Mexican forces um, numbering in the thousands began to besiege this small mission in which there was roughly a couple hundred people there, uh, women and children and men. And around 200 defenders, including James Bowie, uh, William Travis, and the uh, famous Davy Crockett, uh, were there uh, trying to defend this space. And for 13 days, they, they defended it until they were eventually overcome completely. And the remnants of the Alamo is kind of what stands today. They've built up around it to make it uh, a little bit more to come see. I did get in an argument with a Texan this week on the historicity of the Alamo, and they don't really take uh, grant. <laughs> they take that really, uh, they take it on the chin is a better word to say. They really don't like you talking about the Alamo because it bears great significance to them. It is kind of the rallying cry of all people born of Texas. What is it? Remember the Alamo. Uh, strangely enough, the, the Alamo reminds me of what the church means for Jesus' followers. You see, for nearly 2,000 years, the church body has been the living testament of the life, the work, the death and resurrection of Jesus. It stood the test of time through persecution and hardship and through constant changes of the world. And we've been working our way through this series, Ecclesia, looking at the different dynamics of the church to, to try to wrap our mind around what the church is and what the church isn't. And we, we see that the church is this important thing in all of our lives, but oftentimes we can't put a finger on what defines the church, and in a sense you really can't. But we've been looking at the dynamics of the church in this way. We've seen that the church is a community of both sinners and saints, not a community just for saints. That the church is a community of transformation and sanctification. That the church community is not just about giving of yourself, but at times we need to receive. The church community should affirm who we are as an individual, but the church community should also challenge us to become something more. So as we wrap up our series today, turn to the book of uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 1. Now of course you know I'm going to give you too much context so go ahead and grin and bear through it. Uh, what's going on in this book of, of 1 Peter? Well when you start to get to these later books in the New Testament they start to get really really thin. You're talking about books like uh, uh, James and Peter and John. Uh, these books that are so tiny but they bear so much significance. 
you think about it, James, John, and Peter were said to be some of the closest disciples of Jesus. So therefore their words matter a lot to us. But for the most part, in most churches on a Sunday morning, you're going to hear something out of the Gospels or most likely out of the letters of Paul. Not really do we dig into these later books. So what's going on in these letters? First and foremost, First and Second Peter and Jude are called what was called the Catholic letters. Now, when you hear that word Catholic, most of us think the Catholic Church. But what the word Catholic means is universal. So the church universal. What, so why these are called the Catholic letters is because they weren't written to one specific church like Paul was writing to the church of Galatians or Colossae or Philippi, but instead they were letters that were written and distributed to a bunch of churches. So they're called the Catholic letters because they were distributed to the universal church. So when, when Peter is writing this letter, he's writing not to just one community, but to a bunch of communities. And it's fascinating to read this. And so let's begin to dig into what Peter's trying to get into here in 1 Peter 2, 1. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you might grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you were here for our conversation last week, this almost feels like we're picking up where we left last week as Caitlin preached and was telling us that the church is a community that should be a place of comfort, but it's also a place of challenge. The church should be a community that helps us grow. And you can almost hear Peter saying in this moment, you've been sipping out of a sippy cup for a long time, but it's time to pick up your big boy and big girl cups and begin to sip on something a bit more mature. Some of us might say, all right. <laughs> He's both affirming and he's challenging them. He's saying you're growing in your journey with Jesus, but also we all have so much further to go. He's calling them to rid themselves of, of so, so much things of immaturity, of, of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. He's saying you can grow up out of these things if you nurture from God who wants you to grow and become something more. God wants to mature you into something more. I love that phrase he says, grow up in your salvation. And he settles a bit more into this in verse 4 when he says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built in spiritual houses to be a holy priesthood, offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, what Peter is doing here is he's drawing in on all different types of metaphors. There's a lot of token words here that we need to hold on to. And he's, he's not just comparing us to some priesthood, some stone, some sacrifice. But Peter is drawing on a central metaphor for the Jewish people for nearly a thousand years. He's using the language of the temple in Jerusalem. The first temple was, was built by David's son, Solomon, in the year 957 BCE. And it stood as one of the ancient marvels of the world. In roughly 350 years, it stood in its beautiful existence until it was absolutely decimated by the Babylonians. Many Jews were taken off into exile, and as they looked back, they saw their holy temple lying in ruins. And it remained this way until 538 BCE, when the Jews were uh, permitted to return back to the promised land and to begin to rebuild the temple. And there it kind of stood. It was besieged several times by foreign powers until 70 AD when the Jews revolted against the Romans. And guess what happened? The Romans came and destroyed the temple. The only thing remaining is what we see today, which is called the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. 
But for nearly a thousand years, the temple was the central piece of the Jewish faith. It was a place where people came to give their offering, to give their sacrifice, to give their tithe to the religious system. But it was also the central piece of commerce. It was a central piece of their life. And so Peter is writing to a Judaic Christian audience. He's writing to a group of people who most likely grew up in the Jewish faith but came to know Christ. And he's trying to use a language that's familiar to them. And so he says to them, there is this living stone, Jesus Christ, that you are being built up into this wonderful temple that God is building. It's this beautiful illustration of stones and pillars and temples. The Bible uses the language of stones a lot. In fact, one of my favorite texts comes from Joshua chapter 2 uh, through 4, where Joshua is leading the people into the promised land. We remember the story. Um, the Israelites for 40 years didn't update their Garmin GPS, and they wandered for 40 years not knowing where to go. Uh, but no, this generation, because of their disobedience to God after God brought them out of Israel, they wandered the wilderness for 40 years. Moses, the great leader, the person who helped bring them out, is buried on a mountain overlooking the promised land. He doesn't enter into it, but it's Joshua. Joshua does that. And, and as the people are going across, they, they cross the Jordan River much the way they cross the Red Sea. It splits in half and they walk on dry ground. But a curious thing happens as they're going across. God instructs Joshua to step down and to pick up 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And when they get to the other side, Joshua stacks these stones together and he gathers the people and he reminds them of their story. Of their story of Abraham being called out by God all the way through Egypt. Of God leading the people out of Egypt into freedom. And God now leading the people into Israel. He's using stones, stacked stones to remind them of where they are coming from. And what Peter is trying to do here is he's trying to draw on us on a metaphor that we can understand. Peter is drawing us on the metaphor of the temple being stacked in these stones saying God is building you. I love that image. We individually and collectively are being built by God into spiritual priesthood. Each day we are a living offering of God as God has both sacrificed God's self for us but also is building us up, calling us to sacrifice our lives to become something more. And he's saying that God is actively at work in our lives. As Peter wrote from the beginning of our text, let God continue to work through your life, building you into something wonderful. And I just, I close my eyes and I imagine the metaphor here. That God wants to remove these, these studs of malice and envy. That God wants to redo the poor foundation that was built on deceit and hypocrisy and slander. And in turn, God is trying to seek out each day to develop a healthy foundation of truth, of humble living, of honesty. That God wants to put in support walls of love and compassion and grace and contentment with enough. Peter is using the present future tense. In other words, he's saying this is the act of God now, but this is going to be the ongoing act of God. That God is rebuilding you individually and rebuilding us collectively into something better. Together as the church, individually as followers of Jesus, we are being built into something better and more holy. When 
Mosaic started, Jennifer and I uh, lived deep in the heart of the Cleveland area of Clayton. It was so deep that we had a Smithfield address. Y'all, it was like that deep. So if you lived in Riverwood, it would take you like 30 minutes sometimes to get to our house. And our home was always open. We had community groups there. We had a finna group. Some of y'all are shaking your heads because you're like, oh yeah, we remember we would bring a tent and extra water just in case we didn't make it back at night and we would, you know, build camp somewhere. Um, so we decided if we really wanted to be community and if our home was going to be a second home for Mosaic that we wanted to live closer into the community so we sold our home we bought uh, a lot and we uh, had a home built there and as the home was being built uh, we invited Mosaic to come and to um, write on the door frames of our house and on the walls of our house and so we invited Mosaic after worship to come and we distributed permanent markers and we invited people to go wherever they wanted in the house and to write. And some people wrote scripture verses and some people wrote prayers. Um, I specifically remember Craig Lee writing a message on our master bedroom wall that will not be repeated here on Sunday morning. Uh, but at any rate, the wall studs, the door frames, the floorboards, the ceiling beams were all covered in an array of images and messages and scripture. And for us... Um, our home was going to be a second home for Mosaic. For us, our home was a living metaphor of God's work reconstructing our lives individually and collectively from the inside out. There's something to be said about a community that has a settled foundation. We see this for nearly a thousand years. The, people, uh, the Hebrew people's lives were centered around this temple. And though it's taken on many different forms over the last 2,000 years, the church has gathered in homes and buildings that matters. A settled foundation gives a sense of permanence. It says God has done great work and we are doing it here. We're here to stay. A settled foundation gives us a sense of accomplishment. Remembering that we stack these stones to, to remember to tell us that we have done something. That God has brought us to this place. A settled foundation gives a sense of defined goals. As the church gathers in intentional space each week it is declaring that we have a purpose that we are about God transforming our lives and us transforming the community. There's something to be said about a settled foundation. But remember I said for the Hebrew people that all changed in 70 AD. In 70 AD when Rome came with brute force and destroyed the temple, it changed things forever. Did you know up until this point that, that Christians were viewed as being part of the Jewish faith? It really wasn't until 70 AD when Rome expelled the Jews from Rome and they began to expel them across the Roman Empire did the church begin to separate itself from this Hebrew faith. And as the church faced hardship, Paul, uh, Peter is writing this letter to them. He's trying to give them a sense of settledness. He's trying to give them this sense of foundation that they once had in this temple, that they maybe once had in their sanctioned church buildings He's trying to say to them that no matter where you go, no matter who you are, you are the church. And he writes this beautiful verse in verse 9. He says this. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possessions, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to... To abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You see, the church is facing hardship. 
They're facing all these challenges around them. There is no sense of settledness. But Peter writes to them, no matter where we gather, we are still the church. You see, the church is this settled body of people. It is this settled group of people. It might actually have a foundation of brick and mortar, but the church is more than that. No matter where we gather, here, at La Casina afterwards, to put down some chips and salsa, we we are the church. When we gather in each other's homes during the week, we we are the church. And, And Peter writes these beautiful words. I love these words. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You see, what Peter is trying to say here is that it's not about a location. It's not about a building. It's not about a name. It's about the fact that we belong to something that's greater than, than ourselves. It's called the kingdom of God. You are that nation. You are that kingdom. You are that gathering of people following Jesus Christ. Jesus changed all of this. As Peter writes to this people that their faith was centered in this promised land around this temple, he's saying that that no longer exists because of Jesus. That Jesus is gathering all people who will come and follow him to himself. It's not just about Israel. It's not just about the temple. It's the whole world now. And no matter where we are, no matter where we go, we are the mobile body of Christ. So no matter if we gather in a church building that has a steeple, if we gather in a home, if we gather in a fitness center, we are still the church. The church isn't a static location. It's a mobile body. When I was a kid, uh, we borrowed my grandparents' RV one year to take a road trip around Florida. Um, with my grandparents uh, living in Florida, we, get, we got to go to Disney a lot when I was a kid. Um, that sounded very braggadocious. I didn't mean for it to sound that way. Delicious coffee. Um, but one year we decided, let's go see the sights and sounds of Florida. And so we took my grandparents' RV and we, uh, we, we did things like uh, going to the fresh water springs that pumps out 50 degree water year round. It's a great place for tubing and snorkeling. Um, we went down the St. John's River where you see both alligators and manatee. Uh, we drove down to the, the Florida Keys and went deep sea fishing. And we did this, all this through my grandparents' RV. Um, but did I mention that it broke down? Like multiple times. <laughs> and there's nothing more annoying than having a big vehicle break down and then three boys in the back saying, how long is it going to take for it to get fixed? I don't know how my parents didn't go insane. And probably about the 15th time when we were sitting at this RV repair shop, um, my mother in her good graces could have snapped, but I remember she turned at us and she essentially said this, you know, no matter where we go on this trip, whether the beaches or springs or Disney or this car repair shop, we are still a family. We are still together, and that's all that matters. I spoke with a friend recently, a pastor friend of mine, who said something that really haunted me. He said, my church is dying, and there's not a lot I can do to prevent it. Stop and consider that that statement for just a second. My church is dying and there's not a whole lot I can do to prevent it. Number one, my theological issue with that is I didn't know it was the clergy's responsibility to, uh, you know, give life to a church or to give death to a church. Number two, isn't the church the body of Christ? And so if you say the church is dying, you're saying the body of Christ is dying? That's just theologically incorrect. 
What he was trying to say was that the local expression of his church, the local construct of this specific gathering of people in this specific location, in this specific building, is starting to see the end of its chapters together. Because generation after generation, the church has not innovated. They're simply dying off. Literally, people are going into the ground and new people are not coming into the church building. And for most of us, whether we grew up uh, Lutheran or Catholic or Methodist or Baptist or Presbyterian, we didn't grow up in the church at all. For most of us, when we think about the church, we think of the construct of a church building. And yet we face a period in time in the church's history where buildings with spires and steeples are slowly going away. Does this mean that the church is dying? Good gracious, I'm not going to say that. Could it mean that the church has something better in store? Could it mean that pillars and pulpits and fellowship halls and organs and steeples are giving way into an exciting new chapter for the church? I find that to be fascinating and exciting and vibrant and a brilliant time for the body of Christ. So what I want us to hear this morning is this. What Peter is trying to convey through this text, I think it can be heard to the church today. Though the church once was viewed as a static location, we are called to be on the go. As we go, we are called to live in the way of Jesus. We are still called to be the church, no matter where we gather. The church across the world, as we live our lives, we are called to live into the way of Jesus. Peter is pushing this out. He's saying, live humble lives. Live good lives. Live lives where you're serving other people. You are called to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Live lives that glorify God each day. He's calling them that as they go with the chaos of the world that was happening around them, to still be like Jesus each day. He said, discover holiness because God is making us holy. Be transformed by the way of Jesus. He's calling them to live in the way of Jesus. Ekklesia. It's this word we've been chewing on for four weeks. It's the Greek word that means gathering, a community, a united body. We call it the church. Nothing in the name denotes a location or a building. The name means a gathering of people for a purpose. We are a living temple of Jesus in the world. We are the mobile church on the move doing good work of the kingdom in Clayton and Garner and Smithfield and Cleveland and Raleigh and Holly Springs and beyond. We are part of a greater network called the kingdom of God where people all over the world are living transformed by Jesus and transforming the world through Jesus. So what is our calling? The church is not a place for sinners or saints. The church is of sinners and saints. The church is an active and living community of Jesus Christ. It is therefore a place, no matter who you are, no matter your race or nationality or faith practice or sin or marital status or economic status or gender identity or sexual orientation or physical or mental ability or political stance or theological perspective or station of life or caliber of self-righteousness, the church is a safe community for you. The church is a group of people that engage brokenness and darkness in this world to bring restoration and healing and light. The world needs compassion. The world needs hope. We are called to bring that to the world, not stay in some settled static building. And in the face of this, we see that the church can also be a place of consumerism where we constantly want to take and take and take from the church. But we learn through this series that the church is a community that calls us to give of ourselves, our time, our resources, our strengths, our availability for the sake of the kingdom, but also 
you and I face chapters in life where we need to receive from the church. We need to receive hospitality. We need to receive hope. We need to receive rest. So we also receive from the church. The church is a community that is called to not just make us comfortable, but to challenge us. To call us to think differently. Jesus' invitation is change your way of thinking and living. This does not mean simply day by day we become the same person we were yesterday. But if we live in the way of Jesus, we are called to think differently. To make choices differently. To build relationships differently. And this happens in a static location where we gather for worship and community and discipleship and learning to serve others. But the church also is in a building. It's an active community where we are the mobile body of Christ. We are called to gather in our lives each other uh, by loving each other each day, by encouraging each other, by supporting each other, and being the same thing to all others in this community. This is the ecclesia. This is the church. In the words of Diana Butler Bass in her wonderful book, Christianity After Religion, she writes, If we think of belonging only as membership in a club, organization, or a church, we miss the point. Belonging is the risk to move beyond the world we know, to venture out on a pilgrimage, and to accept exile. And it is a risk of being with companions on that journey. God, a spouse, friends, children, mentors, teachers, people who come from different places, people who come from entirely the same place, sinners and saints of all sorts, those that know us, and those who don't know us, our secret longing, questions, and fears. Yet we venture out together.